And as the kids are going, again, I'd just like to encourage you, uh, we do have um, mailboxes in the back that have a lot of stuff in them, and that's a way of people uh, also passing out Christmas cards. So please go back and check your mailboxes, or you can just get your Christmas card all throughout the year if you'd like. But um, I was passing by, and I saw a card that my daughter had written as a thank you note back in May to someone, and it was still in their box. I will not point out who. Uh, but you do have a thank you note there. Um, and so just saying all of that, please, they're, they're back there to go take a look at it. Um, let's look to the Lord in prayer and then dive into the text here. Dearly Father, thank you again. As we just sang, our Lord Emmanuel, God with us. We just stand amazed of your love for a sinful world that you would come and dwell amongst men. Even though we know these songs and they, the words of them are familiar to us, yet many times we can so quickly move on from the Christmas season and we forget the reason, we forget the depth of all the things that are here. The sheer fact that God would descend to dwell among us and that we were able to behold your glory. And so, dearly Father, help us today as we turn our hearts and minds to this Advent candle of love. May we truly grasp it. We truly understand and try to, try to plumb the depth of this word love. In your name we pray. Amen. The word love, probably more than any other word in, the, in this English language that we have, has probably been stripped of the depth of its meaning. Uh, love has been used in so many Ways, it has been talked about, it is almost as if it was a magical thing. Something that, you know, if you watch a show and someone falls in love, there's like just glitter that just falls over. There's just weird haze that comes about and you try to get like, am I seeing something or whatever? No, that person is falling in love because we talk about something you fall into. We also use expressions like you can fall out of it. All right, so I guess be careful as you're walking out of church here, lest you fall out of love or fall into it. And we're confused by it. Not that many years ago, a man named Andy crooned a song, and as Andy was singing this, he told us that love is a many-splendored thing. And he goes on to describe it as if this clears it up. He says, it's the April rose that only grows in early spring. And you're like, oh, that explains it, right? Then he goes on, it, love is nature's way of giving a reason to be living because love is a many-splendored thing, and we all go, that makes no sense at all, but people like it. Then a guy named Alan starts telling us that we can live on love, we can buy on time, and if you don't have anything, nothing's ain't worth a dime, right? And so you can live on it. We try to say it's some rose that grows, and then we even turn, and maybe the hymn book will give us some clarity. And so we turn to an analogy about love. And the hymn writer writes, So, take the ocean and fill it with ink, and if the sky was made of parchment, and every stalk on earth was a quill, and every scribe, um, uh, everyone in the world a scribe by trade. All right, so now we're going to try to write the love of God. What's going to happen when we try to write the love of God? It's going to drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Another way of saying that in very poetic language, good luck trying to talk about the love of God. Because it is so vast, 
It is so deep. It is so immense that you can't even describe it. And then the chorus goes on, O love of God, how rich and pure. And then it reminds us how measureless and strong, meaning you're not going to measure this. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. And so now the challenge in front of us, we light a candle on love, and you're going to go try to describe love in a short little block of time. Because all of us are coming in with this weird, non-biblical, just romantic thing that we hear about love all the time. We're all coming in from a world that is saturated with that. And trying to grasp and try to understand love is at the core of all of our, if you want to call it, our relationships with one another. But as we talked about last time, until we understand love this way, we're never going to get love man-to-man figured out. And so we turn to a text in 1 John here. Now we're going to be spending a lot of time in either the epistles that John wrote or the gospel that John writes. And church history records that as John, when even though he was isolated to the island of Patmos, as he was moving around, one of the things that he was known to have said over and over and over again is people would come up and say, hey, John, tell us something. He would just say, love one another. And it was a common theme that he would share. And you see this spilled over into the epistle here that he's writing. So let's turn to 1 John 4. We'll be reading verses 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So I'm going to spend some time here breaking down this passage here real quick. In verse 7 especially, and then carrying into verse 8, we're going to see that God is love. But before we get to that, what we're going to see is that the ground of the command to love one another in this passage, the ground of the command, because whenever a command is given, there's usually grounds. On what basis is this command to be given? And the command to love one another is literally grounded on the very character of God. Because God is love Now you are to love one another. And so we have to understand in order to love one another, then let's go back. You have to understand God and love before we can learn how to love one another. And notice what the text says here in verse 7. For love is from God. So we see the commandment, beloved, let us love one another. And then the reason, we see that word for there, because for love is from God. Christian love, we think about this for a moment, is a love that does not come from self. Christian love is a love that can come from one person and one person only, God himself. Notice what that text is saying. So we've already stripped ourselves of human thinking love, and we said in order to love, we must understand that love is from God. And we know this. I mean, most of us, most kids can sing the little song about the fruit of the Spirit, and as you're singing through the fruit of the Spirit song, one of the things you're going to run into is the fruit of the Spirit of love. Now let's go back again and think through this. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit that is seen when the Spirit comes and dwells within a believer that is seen by these fruits that come out. And now it's actually one fruit, but in multiple ways we see it. And one of the ways we see it is through love. So we're saying that this is not a human way of thinking. This is a spirit way of thinking that comes in that causes us to love. 
So another way of saying it is, in order to understand love, true love, God then is the foundation and the source of love. That God is the foundation and the source of love. And this would cause us to pause for a moment. I would argue this is also why the world attacks this thing called love over and over and over again, because to attack it literally and to disguise it and to confuse it is going to give us a confusion and understanding of who God is. Because if we're truly clear, and let's be honest with ourselves in most of our relationships, there's a lot of self in this love that I'm giving. There's a lot of, well, I love this person because you know what? They like me back. And we have this struggle that is there. If you're going to go, am I just scratching the itch? And before you know it, self becomes. So now let's look at this for a second, though. Verse 7. Again, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So verse 7 is telling us, again, that the supernatural love comes only from being born again. That if you're not born again, you cannot love as the text is telling us here. Because this love comes directly from God. So again, we think about this for a moment. Regeneration must take place, and if it does take place in the heart of a believer, as this working of the Spirit is coming through, one of the evidence of if you are born again is that you are loving, and if you are not loving, it's an evidence that you have not been born again, because if you are born again, you will love. Right? This is where John 13, you're gonna, you can turn there if you want, we're going to be back in 9 and 10, but we'll get to 13 and 17, but John 13, 35 literally is a summary statement, they're going to know that you're disciples of God by your love, not because you're loving, that makes you a disciple of God, you're a disciple of God because you have been changed, born again, so you love, is the context of that passage there. And back in 1 John, if I threw you off there, we're back in 1 John 4 again. 1 John 4 here, the text goes on to even say, after he says, if you're going to truly love, you must be been born again and you must know God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? So the text goes on. If you do not love, you do not know God, because if you did love and you knew God, you would know that God is love. The very definition of who God is, is love. God is so linked to love that in order to explain who God is, literally the text is bound by this. If you want to know what love is, you know God, because God literally is, by definition, love. Now what John's going to go on is flesh this out in verses 9 and 10. Point number two is we're going to see that God's love was made manifest. In verse 9 here, in this, the love of God was manifest. Another way of saying the word manifest was displayed among us. And how was God's love displayed? How was it brought into display? It was displayed by sending His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. Now what I'm going to do, I'm going to pause for a moment. We're going to turn our Bibles to John chapter 17, and we're going to be there for a while. I want you to turn to John 17. And then when you get there, I want you to stop and look up at me, because we need to talk. All right, I'm going to do, like when I used to teach, you were like, write this down. When you're done writing, everybody look up at me and smile. That way I knew you were done. And then you have the goofy kid just smiling at you the whole time, never writing anything. But let's get to John 17. 
And when you're there, then we need to talk about this. Now, remember when we talked about discernment, of knowing the difference between right and wrong, and also knowing the difference between almost right and almost wrong? Now, it sounds really good on the surface, but that's, there's so much more to that. All right, and so what we're going to do right now is we're going to take a walk through John 17. But before we do that, there has been some really good, well-meaning answers to the question of why did Jesus come to save? There's been some really great, well-intended people that have left out so much of the story where the question in front of us is how do we handle that question? Why did he come? You're left with Did he come because you are the center of the story? Are you the center of the story of why Jesus came? Are you the center of the plan of salvation? Or are you a benefactor of a plan that displays the glory, love, wisdom, and purity of the relationship of the Trinity? And you are to display for all of us to see this depth of the relationship that God the Father has for His Son. Now, obviously, by just me even reading that, you're going to go, well, He's not saying that you're the center, all right? There's going to be something going on in the Trinity here that we are benefactors of. But I want to walk us through this for a moment. Because in John chapter 17, which I haven't gotten to yet, but in John 17, we have a conversation that's going on, a prayer, between the Trinity, where God the Father and God the Son are in fellowship with one another, and we actually get a pause, a look into how Jesus and God the Father interact with one another. And this is something that I... uh, The problem with going through John 17 right now is there is going to be so much we are going to skip over that we don't even have the depth to plumb. All right, this is going to be one of those passages you could read a hundred times and get 200 sermons from. All right, but we're just going to walk, and what I want to look at the theme here is listen and look at how Jesus interacts with the Father and the Father interacting with the Son and what this has to do with love. Look at their intimate relationship that they have with one another, and that's the theme I want to walk us all the way through, because what we have here is literally Jesus, on the night he is betrayed, he is in the garden, and he is crying out to his Father everything that's about ready to happen. The great culmination of redemptive story is about ready to take place, and Jesus is speaking to his Father, and basically if you want to say like one more time here about everything, and this is a very intimate prayer between the God the Father and God the Son. I mean, let's just pause for a second there, talking to one another. So let's just look at what we have here. Then Jesus, in verse 1, spoke these words. He lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Let me just pause there for a second. The plan that was planned before the world began, the hour has been ticking to this very moment here. Nothing is just random. The hour has come. It is ready to take place. And here's what he prays. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Glorify me that I may also point other people back to who? To you. And now we see this beautiful thing, this idea of authority and submission. Since you have given him authority over all flesh... The Father gives the Son, the Father has the authority, He gives the Son the authority to do what? 
to give eternal life to all that you have given him. And so we see this, we see this exchange back and forth that the son is under the authority, placed there, not because he is less than equal to God, co-equal in everything, but what is the Son doing? Submitting to the authority of God the Father to do what he has called him to do. I mean, there's enough marriage illustrations in there. You would go for years on that thing. Equal in value, different in role, and we just see the beauty of it. All right, This whole marriage thing is not just a, oops, I figured it out along the way. It literally comes from the foundation of the Trinity. I'm trying really hard to not preach that sermon right now. And so they go on, he says, and this is eternal life. What is eternal life? That you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. What is eternal life? Knowing the Father, knowing the Son, that they may know one another. And what is Jesus saying? I want them to know you and to know me whom you have sent. Verse 4. What did, he do? what did he come down here to do? I glorified you on earth, and I've accomplished the work that you've given me to do. Jesus came down and he says, I did not come in my own authority. I came down to glorify you and to do what you've called me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And notice what we're seeing here is this is all about the glory of God. And now notice what Jesus came down to say, I have manifested your name to the people. I've displayed it to the people whom you've given me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. Literally, he's saying, I came down here to point everybody back to you so that they, you would, that they would know that everything that I've said is from you. And we can see the prayer continuing on. Now they know that everything, verse 7, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them, and have come to know the truth and I, that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me out of word, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Notice what they're doing. This group of people that they are redeeming back and forth that they're talking about that are being redeemed out of this world is all about the glory of God, that he would bring glory to God in redeeming. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm keeping and I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. And again, we see this, what we're going to happen here, I'm just going to dive into this real quick. What we see here is many... Many theologians would say when Jesus is about ready to go to the cross and become sin, he who knew no sin to be sin, it is almost like he is saying to the Father, hold on to the people that I've been holding on to. And when all of this is done, we will be one as we are one now. And they will see this beauty, this oneness in Christ that we have. There is so much you can dive into of what's going on on the cross and everything else. I think we get a little inkling in here. He's saying, I have kept them. I'm about ready to do something. You keep them. And almost of saying, Father, this gift that we have back and forth of this redeemed people, they are yours to keep while I am about ready to become the, sl the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And notice what he goes on to say. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not in the world, just as I am not in the world. Verse, verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these alone, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Do you realize in verse 20 there, that's you and me? The disciples are going out, and Jesus is now praying that as their word goes out and crosses the Atlantic Ocean, and he's gathering in these people, and he says, I'm praying for you. He's praying for us in that moment there. And what does he pray? That they may be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What they are praying is that that we would have the same depth that the Father and the Son have in their relationship with one another, that we would be like them in the way our relationships are with one another. Verse 22, The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love me even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am, to see your glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. What is Jesus praying here? That this group of people, these, this redeemed out of every tongue, type, and nation, as the Bible tells us, this number that will not be able to be counted, myriad upon myriad, would be able to see the glory of God displayed for all time. Verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these known that you have sent me, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Why is he going to continue to make the, the name of God known? That the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. All right, again, what is the purpose of salvation? The glory of God. Jesus came down to glorify his father. Would the father say, I've come down to glorify my son. And we see this beautiful relationship of love within the Trinity that we stand by and say, how marvelous, how wonderful that God would redeem a group of sinners like us to see his glory. And out of love, he redeemed. There's so much in this. There's so much depth and love that the Father has for His Son, that the Son has for His Father. And then we're not going to spend time now, but you flip over to Revelation and you just start thinking about the book of Revelation. All of the praise in heaven is towards who? The Lamb that was slain. Jesus came down and wanted to point everybody to the Father. What is the Father doing in heaven? Pointing everyone to the Son and their love for one another that was in there. And by God's grace, we are benefactors of this glorious love spilling over into the world that then all of the followers of God, why will the followers of God be known by their love? Because literally, who is love? Jesus is love. God the Father is love. The Holy Spirit is love. All of these things are pouring out to the lost world around us. So if you could turn back to 1 John 4. I'm just going to summarize here what we see in 1 John 4. In 1 John 4, verses 7 through 11, what we see here again is that God's love is seen by sending His Son. His Son was sent, and we see the Father's love. We also see the Father's love by loving the unloving. His love for the unlovable and loving there is because he is the one that's, that was the pursuer. And not only that, John is going to go 
And in verse 10, remind us of this. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What is the word propitiation? That word propitiation in Tim's definition, because all the other ones were way too long to write out. So I am hacking and slicing here, but I'll just give you one that you could write down. Is the satisfying of the wrath of God and God looking upon you with favor. The satisfying of the wrath of God and God looking upon you with favor. Interestingly enough, as we were lighting these candles, the peace candle came before the love candle. The death of Christ satisfied the righteous wrath of God, and because of Christ's perfect sacrifice, the favor with God is for those who are clothed in Christ's righteousness through salvation. Turn with me real quick to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 is a great understanding of this concept of appreciation, the wrath of God being turned away and favor resting on those who know Christ. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. Remember, I want you to have John 17 still sounding in your ears as you read this prophecy. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put him, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offering, he shall prolong his days. The Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. What we see here is Jesus was sent to be crushed for our sins, to be bruised, and to live that perfect life that we could never have lived, and to die the death that we could never have died, not only satisfying the wrath of God, but the wrath of God then turning to favor upon those who believe. And in this we see love. Because we're left with verse 11 in 1 John 4. Verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So God's love is going to be seen through His church. I put in your bulletin there, we're going to, we're going to go through these here quickly. We don't have time to turn to all the passages of Scripture. I'd encourage you to turn to them to study these one another commands. Our love for Christ is going to be seen in our love for one another. And the reason why our love for Christ is going to be seen in one another is if we have been born again, if we have been regenerated, been born anew, we will have a different relationship with one another. This fruit of love is going to be poured out in our lives to how we interact with one another because we have had that interaction with God. And so Hebrews reminds us one of the ways that God's love is seen is literally by gathering together. Because the world is going to want to isolate what the love of God does is cause us to gather together because as we see in one another the work that God is doing, it's going to cause us to want to come together and to celebrate what God is doing through us. We also come together to encourage one another. But when we hear the word encourage, I want you to, to not always think positively here in this word encourage, all right? Because there's some aspects of encouraging that my kids would look and say, that's not all that positive. Like I would say, I'm encouraging my son to take out the trash, and if he doesn't, there'll be more encouragement given until the trash is taken out. And he's like, I'm not necessarily that encouraged by what dad is calling encouragement. 
So there are some things that we do, and Paul is talking in Corinthians about when we encourage one another. This is the positive part of continuing on. Because what is going to happen, and we've read about this all through Matthew, we've read about this in other passages of Scripture, that as time gets closer to the Lord's return, it is going to not just get hard, but really, 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 really hard. People are going to be deceived, and deception is going to be all around us, and there are going to be moments where you're going to look and go, is it really worth it to carry on? And that's why God has given us one another to say, yes, the prize is greater than the suffering. As Paul would tell, these momentary afflictions mean nothing to the weight of glory. And there's going to be times where you're not going to see the weight of glory in front of you. You're going to see the stuff in front of you. And another believer is going to continue, come alongside of you and say, look, look to him who is faithful. Same thing too with that. We're going to see that refocus because there are going to be so many things in the world that we are going to focus on that are going to be so huge to us that almost become our God. All right, like as Kurt was saying about electricity, if you lose your electricity for the first five or ten minutes, you're like, hey, this is fun, Amish. And then all of a sudden you're going to go, not so fun anymore. All right, when that last toilet flush realizes there's not going to be any more water coming here and everything else, you're going, oh. All right, and then you start sitting in the corner singing, nobody knows the sorrow I've seen, right? And, and you're going to go, yeah, isn't it nice these, these uh, you know, first world problems and all these other things that we're living in here, right? Next, though, besides refocusing is because we're going to need it. We're going to need people to say, hey, remember the importance of what's really important. We're going to also need in this encouragement warning. We're going to need one another to warn us because there are going to be times we're going to go, I don't go down that route. There was a, a dear old lady that I came across that I was talking to one day when I was a pastor down south there, and she said to me, Tim, if you ever run into someone, and she shared with me her story, that is right struggling with this, bring them to me and let me love them and also warn them to not make the same mistakes I made. And so if you see someone teetering on the edge here, have them come to me, I'll come talk to them, and I'd love to share with them, please don't go down this path. But what happens is, Instead of saying this and going like, I'm embarrassed of all of this, what was she was saying? Can I use this gift that God has given me to warn others? Now, even that, we have the word of God that can cause us to look at the world around us and lovingly come around someone because we love them and warn them, hey, where you are going is not correct. Where you are going is not helpful. Uh, one of the things that um, I was involved in as a teacher, we would go to these team building experiences and there was, a, there was a ropes course that they had set up over this massive nasty mud bog. And the, the goal was, was to get everybody across with no one falling in. And they talked to us about how this mud bog was an example of people falling into sin and struggles like this. And the, the whole thing was set up that you were within an arm's reach of everybody else, but you had your rope and you had to pass your rope on right? and everything's going on there. And the funniest part about it all when, when someone was starting to lose their balance, there were people literally with an arm's reach away that could steady them up. But you know what everybody did? Grab their rope tighter and watch the other person fall. And you would say, what's the point of this? To get everybody across without falling. And all of a sudden, when someone would start to fall, everybody would go, oh, boy, that stinks. You know, instead of going, what have we called to do? To grab one another, to encourage one another in the Word of God. Not to sit there and go, I can't believe you fell. I mean, how stupid are you? No. It's to cause the encouragement that we have for one another. 
Galatians, it reminds us the love of God is seen in the church by bearing one another's burdens. And this here is probably one of the hardest things because the American culture continually pounds us. You got a problem? Figure it out yourself. Or go pay someone to do it, right? But we have a church body that God has given us to carry one another's burdens. I'm not just saying physical burdens like shoveling snow. I'm talking about the burdens of living in a sinful world. But it is so hard for us because if we're not careful, these burdens that God has placed on us have been given to us to strengthen us. And also, when we don't allow someone to share our burden, you're robbing them of the blessing of encouraging them as well. And so when we say, I'm just going to hang this, when God has given us people to carry burdens with us, we rob them of that ability. And then last but not least, how the love of God is seen. The love of God is seen as we witness to the unsaved world. John 13, 35, again, they will know that we are Christians by our love. So I want to pause here for a second. We have a couple of minutes left. I'll give you the old, you know, in conclusion, so that gives me more time. So in conclusion here, there's a way of thinking that we really have to, we have to fight. We have to understand this. And I want to help you out real quick. Even though we've made some remodeling here, we are not a cruise liner. All right, if we were a cruise liner, you would expect things that happen in a cruise liner. Now, before I get into this analogy, I want to give you an example. So my grandfather, when I was 10, he passed away when I was 13. When I was 10, I used to sit and talk to him. And uh, he was actually in the South Pacific in World War II. I'll get through this. It's, the story's not sad, but just think about grandfather. So he was in a boat called an LSM. An LSM is a floating U. And it would go on the beaches and drop down in and pick up stuff and move them. And so he's in the South Pacific. And one of the things he was in charge of, when they would move from one island to the next, dropping off stuff, he would sit as a gunner because they only had a couple of guns on the thing. And there wasn't that many guys, probably eight, nine, ten guys on the ship with him. And they had, they had to go to one island, and this was in the Lady Gulf area at the time, if that matters to you. And they picked up a bunch of uh, gasoline tankers. And they were all, they had four or five gasoline tankers are on, and they're going to move them to another island. And as they're moving them in the South Pacific there, they see off in the distance two zeros, Japanese planes, flying at them. The planes fly over, they turn around, and they take a look. They kind of like dip their wings, and they take a look, and they realize, hey, this is a target that's going to go ba-boom. All right, and so all of a sudden they turn, and one of them gets ready for a kamikaze dive right at him. And so they're all firing. Here's what's not happening while they're shooting at this plane. That guy over there that's loading my gun, he cut in front of me. There is no way, you know, he cut in front of me at lunch. There is no way I'm firing any of the bullets he gives me. Nor was there, you know what? He sat in my chair at lunch. I'm not firing his shots. You know, the bullet he gave me or the guy that's over there, he looks over to the other guy. No, I don't like the way he looked at me. He didn't say hi this morning when he got up. He walked right by me or whatever and just fill in all the blanks. All right, that's not happening, right? Because what are they? They've got a task in front of them that's greater than any of these other little pet peeves. If you're a cruise liner, you come in on Sunday and you're going to go, I'm walking through that wall because that's where I've walked the last 40 years of my life, and I'm going to walk through that wall, whether it's not because I don't like change, because I walk through the church that way. Or, why they paint the church this color? I don't like that color. You know, and I mean, you get 10 people in a room, you'll have 12 opinions, right? 
Those things, though, and you would think, what can destroy a church faster than anything else is a church that does not show the love of God with one another. We will have disagreements. But going back to the, obviously my grandfather made it, if you haven't, you know, like he wouldn't be telling me the story, all right? I can tell you the rest of it later. When the bullets are flying, what matters matters, and what doesn't matter doesn't matter. They will know that we are Christians by our what? Love for one another. Which means there's going to be some stuff that's going to try to pull us apart. But literally, the candle we lit today was remind us that Christ came, why? To demonstrate love for us that we may, as followers of Him, love one another. And that is so hard because everything in this world is trying to say, you are the center of the universe, you are right, what your opinion is matters, and you know what, you're going to give it no matter what, and you know what, if they don't do what I want them to do, I'm pounding sand, and they're just going to go. Now, when we think of the big picture as a whole, some of these things that at one time would trip us up or looked at us and say, no, that doesn't matter. Because as Peter reminds us that what does love do? Love covers a multitude of sins. That does not mean that we do not address sin. I want to make sure we're clear on it. But guess what? People will sin against you all the time. And if you're going to take offense, you will have plenty to be offended about. All right? If you're not offended yet, probably someone will offend you on your way out. All right? And so, you know, you understand where we're going with this. But what are we to be known as? Our love for one another should grow. And if our love for one another grows because we are connected to Christ and Christ alone, because our eyes are focused on Him and Him alone, then when we gather together, we're not gathering together to see who's got the nicest outfit on, to see who's got this thing or that thing going, or how well was this done, or how well was that done. Do we like the tree on this side? Should the tree be over there? Should we have a tree? Isn't that some type of pagan symbol? I mean, you could just keep going on and on and on. Before you know it, everything just bursts out into all of these frustrations, instead of saying, no, what are we here to do? We are here to proclaim God in all of its fullness to a world that is dying in need of a Savior, and we are to proclaim the gospel message. Why? So that this lost and dying world can have the same fellowship that the Trinity has with one another one day in seeing the glory of God. Because the love, love is of God, love is God, and love is to be displayed to the world by His people. So the question in front of us right now is this. Are our hearts and minds every single day continually being renewed by the Word of God so that we will have a, not a self-centered love, but a love that is wrapped around the truth of who God is? Because every relationship is an opportunity to display the love of God. Every interaction with someone is an opportunity to display the love of God. And the love of God is one that is poured out in our hearts because literally if we are a follower of God, God is love and in Him there is no shadow of turning. And so as we continue to follow God, we will see by God's grace that we will be more united as a church body, we'll be more united in our families, and we'll be more united around the thing that matters is the Word of God. Because we're about ready to turn the corner here. When we turn the corner, Christmas Eve, we're going to light this this center candle, which if you haven't figured out by now is the Christ candle, reminding us, pointing to Christ. But if we so quickly move on, like in the two or three Sundays from now, and forget all of the things that we have walked through here, 
we will become a group of people that become very self-centered, all me-focused, and before you know it, we come into every relationship with saying, what can I get out of it, and not how can I display the glory of God in all of these things. Each day, each moment, as we swing our feet over the bed in the morning, we're confronted with, what's today going to look like? Is it going to be a day that I point others to the glory of God in how I talk, in the simple things I do? Or is it going to be a day that, sadly, it's all about me? Because a day that's all about you will be a horrible, horrible day. Because you'll lay your head on the pillow at night and just go, huh, maybe I just need to close my eyes and let's wake back up again and do this tomorrow because I needed God all, every moment and every ounce of that day I needed him and I started off the day not following after God not renewing my mind so I encourage you allow the love of God to pour deeply into your heart so you can follow him follow him above all let's pray dearly father thank you it's by your grace and your grace alone that we stand when we witness to the unsaved world we witness through our acts of love to one another as we witness, we proclaim the truth of who you are. So, dearly Father, help us. The world desperately needs to hear the gospel truth. Embolden in us a desire to share the gospel. Because you are all about the business of redeeming others, so the glory of you is seen throughout all the land. We ask this in your Son's name we pray. Amen.